Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Lord, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to come together and to study your Torah, to, um, to press into the words of life so that we may receive instructions for life. Uh, Father, we know that this is not a mental endeavor. Uh, this is well, I shouldn't say it isn't one, but it isn't only that. Uh, we we seek you and we worship you not only with our mind, but in fact with our heart, with our spirit. And this has been accomplished because you have sent your spirit into our hearts so that we might cry, uh, we might cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. And so we thank you for this opportunity and the responsibility of coming together and worshiping you and uh, to admonish one another and to build one another up in love. Um, thank you for uh, all of the um, wonderful promises that are, have been given to us and spelled out for us in the pages of your Torah that are only accessible via your son Yeshua. Uh, for what does it say? Uh, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have uh, called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. So you are sending your... Uh, um, sending your promises over and over into our lives so that we can be a blessing and uh, so that we can continue to uh, to share your goodness and mercy with those around us. Uh, we know that this is not just a playground. It's not uh, just time to have fun. We know that it's actually a, it's actually a war, it's, and it's because we've got an adversary, the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So for that reason, Lord, you have commanded us uh, through the Apostle Paul, to put on the armor of the book of Ephesians. You have commanded us to be filled with the Spirit, same book. And we know that as we put on the armor, uh, that that same book promises that we can take a stand against the adversary, and that um, we can make this stand only as we stand on the rock, who is Messiah. If our house is not built on this rock, it will be washed away by the sands of, of um, adversity, by the uh, I'm sorry, it'll be washed away by the waters of adversity, by the uh, the storms of, of doubt and disbelief and discontentment and and uh, just uh, the, the onslaught of evil that this world throws at us. So we, have, we must take our stand in Messiah, and that is the only way in which we will stand. So that we will do. And so thank you, Lord, for allowing us to hide, our wor- hide your words in our heart that we might not sin against you. 
be with us tonight as we uh, embark on another look at Galatians chapter 3 and the passages that we've chosen for our study. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to receive, and a will to to walk in it. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Bishim Amen. Thank you everyone for joining me once again. My name is Ariel and I... Um, I'm coming to you live via Skype, if you're in the, in the Skype room with me tonight. Let's date stamp our recording. This is July 29th, 2017. And we are on week 68 of our Galatians study. Uh, we'd like to invite everyone out um, each Saturday night from about 7 p.m. to about approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And all you really need is an internet connection and Skype. <laughs> So you can access this on your smartphone, you know, your iPhone or Android phone, etc., um, or your computer. And you don't even, I, as I understand it, I don't think you even need a Skype account. You can just, you can connect as a guest as well. But you will need to find us. So head on over to my website, tetzetora.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And from there, look at the very top, and there's a link that should point you to the Galatians Live Study. If you click on that page, it should give you all the relevant information to find us through Skype, and um, as well as uh, partake of the written notes that we're using for each week's study. If you're not able to join us week by week, you're just kind of stumbling on one of these audio recordings that... Uh, you found on the internet or on iTunes store or something like that, and you're not able to join us each week live, no problem. Um, just uh, from my same website, if you look uh, somewhere up and down the page, you'll find the, the link to the audio recordings that I upload each week after I'm done recording them live. And um, you're welcome to just listen to the MP3s like that. Okay. Uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and entertain some liturgy for this evening. As always, we'll have we'll read a little bit of Hebrew and a little bit of Greek. So let's turn first to the Torah, to our Tanakh, the Old Testament, whatever you want to call it, to the book of Deuteronomy. And this time we're just going to pull the second part of the what Judaism calls the Shema, which is made up of three parts, one part, two parts out of Deuteronomy and one part out of the book of Numbers. And um, we're going to pull the middle part right now. It's the part that talks about uh, dwelling in the land and God blessing Israel as she walked into the Torah, kept his laws, and how he blesses her while she's in the land. And we're going to talk about this just because we want to see how the the community of the elect was was supposed to interact with God's law on an everyday basis. And we're going to be talking about, we're still in this section in Galatians 3, where we're where we we've just talked about what was the purpose of the law, you know, why then the law it was added because of transgressions, and we talked about that last week. So go back and get last week's commentary, and you can figure that out. And then we are moving now into this uh, section where Paul's going to start uh, uh, describing uh, another central part or function of the law that is to point us to Messiah, to 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 lead us and to guide us to the teacher of righteousness. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, okay? But let's read this passage out of Deuteronomy real quick. Um, the second part starts in Deuteronomy 11, and it starts in verse, let's see, if you're with me on the in the live class, you see I've got on the screen pulled up the Blue Letter Bible webpage, blueletterbible.org, 
switching to that one just for a few, just for temporarily, while uh, for some reason the other one that I'm normally that I normally go to the uh, Bible Hub, uh, it's been moving kind of slow lately. So I don't know if they're doing server maintenance or whatever, but um, Blue Letter Bible seems to be uh, moving pretty fast, so we're gonna use it tonight. So Deuteronomy 11, we'll start in verse 13, and the Shema pegs it at. Uh, concluding at about verse 21 for the, the, the passage that Judaism has selected for this part of the Shema. So let's read the English out of the ESV and then we'll go back and uh, see what the Hebrew says as well. Deuteronomy 11.13 says, quote, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 14, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Verse 15. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Verse 16. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and, and worship them. Verse 17. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Verse 19. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Verse 20. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the last verse, verse 21, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. Okay, let's go back and uh, read the um, the Hebrew, which is the Westminster Leningrad Codex. It's basically the the, the Hebrew uh, script, uh, text that most people are familiar with, the one that's kind of been accepted in both Christian and Jewish circles. Let's uh, scroll down to verse 13 and start there. Uh, starting right here, it says, V'haya im shemoa tishmuru el mitzvotai asher anuchi mitzaveh et chem hayom la'ahava et Adonai elohechem ul avdo b'chol levavchem b'chol nafshukem. Verse 14 reads, uh, verse 15. Uh, I'm sorry, we read verse 15. Verse. <laughs> Did we read verse 15? No, we didn't. Okay. <laughs> verse 15. Sorry about that. Lost my count. Verse 16. Verse Verse 18. 
ולימדתם אותם את בניכם ודבר בם בשיצוג הביבטקה ולכתוק אבל לא יעקב שחת בכל חומקה וכתב תלמה ומזוזות בטקה וביש ערכה אינברס טוונטי אולן למען ירבו ימיכם וימי ויניכם על האדמה אשר נשבע אבנוני לאבותיכם לתת להם כימי השמים על הארץ All right, there we go. Let's jump now over to some English from Galatians. And this is going to be our passage that starts in chapter 3, verse 19. We're backing up uh, a little bit um, so we can get a running start. We're going to actually read from verse 19 down through the end of the chapter. This big swath of, what is this, 11 verses? 1920 2 to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 4. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Verse 22. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, So then the law was our guardian unto Christ, un let's try that again. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, neither, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then the last verse, uh, verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, let's go back and read... Uh, let's, let's use the morphological Greek New Testament, the MGNT, which uh, basically is like the uh, it's Westcott and Westcourt, Westcott and Hort's uh, um, work, which is essentially the the, the SBLGNT, same similar Greek uh, Greek uh, manuscript that we're using here. This will just give me the Greek. It won't have all the the busy. Um, Uh, like we've done in the past with all the top to bottom Strong's number, and then we've got the inter the, the transliterated Greek and the Greek text, and then below that the the morphology, the parts of speech, the wooden pony translation, all that stuff. It won't have that this time. We'll just just straight up Greek basically. So we'll use that, and we'll start in verse 19 again and read the same passages. For those of you who are in the class with me, we're starting right here in verse 19, and remember Greek reads. Left to right, just like English does. So we're starting right there. Verse 19 starts out. Oops, there we go. Uh, verse 19 starts out. Ti un ho namas. Why then the law? Ton parabasion. Charen. Prosetete achris. U. 
Elf, I'm sorry, who Elfain to sperma ho epan pingletai di atagis di angelon in cheri mesitu. Verse 20. Ho de pistio, uh, pist, <laughs> let's try that again. Ho de, uh, pistes henos, henos uk estin, ho de theos es estin. Verse 21. Ho un namas kataton epangelion tu theu meganoito, agar adathe, Namas ho dunamana zopwesai. Hantos ek namu an en he dekayusune. Uh, verse 22. Alasuna klesin e he uh, grafe tapanta hupa hamartian. Hina e apangelia ek pistios. Jesu Christu dothe tois pistiusen. Verse 23. Hoste honamas, pedagogas, uh, hemon gegonen, gegonen, es Christon hina ek pistios de kaiothomen. Verse 25. El thuses de tes pistios uketi hupa pedagogan esmen. Verse 26. Pantes gar theu este dia tes pistios en Christo Jesu. Verse 27, Hosoi gar eis Christon e baptiste, Christon, Christon, en edusaste. Verse 28, Uc any, this is where he says, there is neither Jew, neither, there's, there's not either any Jew or Greek, right? Uh, Uc any Judaeus ude Hellene, either Jew nor Greek there. Interesting that the word for Greek is Hellene, as in Hellenism, Hellene. So there's uk any Judaeus ude Hellene, uk any doulas ude Eleutheros, Eleutheros, uk any arsen kai thelu, neither male nor female, pantes gar hemes eis este en Christo Jesu. We're all one, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And then the final verse, ede hemes Christu ara tu Abraham, and if you are uh, in if if you are sons of Abraham, uh, is Christ. If you are in Christ, then you are of Abraham. That is, uh, let's try that verse again. A dehemes Christu ara tu Abraham sperma sons of or offspring of literally um, sperma este cat evangelian cleronamoi. All right, let's stop there. Okay, let's change that back over to the ESV in case I need it later on. And all right, let's let's jump into the commentary. Uh, we're only going to be hitting be hitting three verses tonight. We're going to do verse twenty one, and we'll do then we'll skip a few verses and jump to verse twenty three, and then we'll jump down to verse twenty four, and we'll stop there. So the, the the commentary part isn't that long, and so I'm just going to read it basically, and then we'll go back and I'll go back and talk about it. So, um. I'm not going to do the running start, you know, the, the segue from last week yet. I'll read through the commentary first, and then I'll go back and highlight the parts that I want you to um, to chew on. So the commentary reads this way, uh, 3.20, reading again out of the ESV. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And we're starting in my commentary near the top of page 135. 
Here are my comments about this particular verse. Again, the plain sense of the first part of the verse is cause to understand that the Abrahamic and the Mosheic covenants work hand in hand with one another. That's why he says the promises are not contrary to one another. Torah is not in opposition to Abraham. As for the second part of this verse, Paul simply restates what he previously challenged the influencers to consider. What was that? God's promise of covenant membership and ultimate blessings in the world to come are secured by faith as opposed to being procured through conformity to a man-made ritual supposedly hinted at in the Torah. The righteousness mentioned in this verse, where he says if righteousness were through the law, um, the righteousness that, that's, that's uh, mentioned in this verse is uh, surely equated with positional righteousness. In other words, forensic righteousness, salvation. The verse is not meant to sound as if Shaul is denigrating the Torah of God. The Torah is simply not a salvific document, and that's why he doesn't need to speak of it in pejorative terms. Rhetorically, the, uh, you know, in other words, forcefully, rather uh, uh, pointedly, uh, the apostle challenges all of Judaism to properly understand the role that the law of Hashem plays in life of both an unbeliever and a believer. Right? We're going to talk about these roles that the Torah plays here in a moment. Torah leads to Mashiach. But, once found, Torah continued to instruct the new covenant member in matters of practical righteousness. And we know that's true because we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, what is our familiar passage out of um, 2 Timothy 3.15. I'm sorry, 3.16. that talks about how that all scriptures is given of God, you know, God-breathed and, and, and profitable for reproof, for, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, things like that. All right, let's keep reading in my commentary, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Notice how Paul includes himself in that imprisonment. We were held captive under the law, not you Gentiles were held captive, or even what one might naturally assume if the Torah was for Jews only, you were held captive, or the Jews. He doesn't say that. He says, we. So who's the we? Since he's a Jew and he's writing to Gentiles, gee, this must include both Jews and Gentiles. Having this relationship with the law, contrary to what traditional Judaism teaches, that the law was for Gentiles, Jews only, and contrary to what the church teaches, that the Torah was for Jews only, Paul says, before faith came, we were all held captive under the law. Hmm, okay. And we were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, let's look at my comments. In Galatians 3.22, the verse that I skipped, the scripture is actually personified as, quote, imprisoning all under sin. It actually says we were imprisoned under sin. Here, the term faith in this verse is playing a similar role. Faith is personified. Faith is actually moving. Faith is, is arriving to our community and arriving to us in a personal fashion. It's visiting us, right, before faith came, right? Literally, uh, as we read the Greek earlier, before of the yet-to-be-coming faith, the protu-de-elthe, uh, I'm sorry, produ de let's try that one again, pro-tu-de-elthe-ntain-piston. And I just put the uh, the Greek in the same word order, right? Before, before of the yet-to-be-coming the faith. So, in my commentary, I ask this question, how are we to understand Paul's statement? What does he mean before the faith came, or before the yet-to-be-coming the faith? The yet-to-be-coming faith. Um, who or what is this faith that Paul talks about that was to be coming, or that 
came, uh, as we read it out of the ESV. Is he suggesting, like like um, some Christians do, not all, but some, is he suggesting that before the coming of Yeshua that there was no one of faith? I've heard that one before. No one had faith before Messiah came. Well, that sounds rather uh, bold statement uh, to make in, li- in light of the fact of Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about all the heroes of faith that existed, and they were all Old Testament, quote-unquote, saints. Let's keep reading my commentary. Is Paul suggesting that before the coming of Yeshua that there was no one of faith? Is he advocating a works-based righteousness as ostensibly taught in the Torah before the coming of Yeshua? In other words, you've heard people take talk about how that there were that there are actually two ways to be saved in the Bible. One way is by keeping the law, and then the other way was now that Messiah's come to actually have faith in Messiah, so that those who were before Messiah didn't have to have faith, they simply had to have obedience. So is that what Paul's saying? Before faith came, we were held captive under the obedience of the law? I think in order to understand this verse, that we must weigh it in light of the previous verse where the phrase, quote, the promise by faith of Jesus Christ, end quote, is found. And I didn't bring that into my commentary because there's not a strong point of contention for verse 22 between traditional Christians and tradition and the uh, the uh, the the familiar uh, Torah observant communities or the Torah pursuant uh, Christians. Um, you guys understand what I mean. The Messianic communities, people who are returning to a Hebraic lifestyle. We don't have a strong contention in verse 22, but we when we get down to 23, because he talks about um, uh, we were held captive under the law. This phrase "under the law" is is uh, uh, many Christians' way of saying under the obedience of the law. So they would have ver- uh, Paul saying now before faith came, we were held captive under the obedience of the law in prison till the coming faith would be revealed. And now, of course, that Christ has come, we are no longer held captive under the obedience of the law. That's where I'm kind of going with that concept. Let's keep reading. Paul is teaching, in my opinion, the valuable principle that before an individual comes to faith in Yeshua, he, and this would include Jew and Gentile, he is held prisoner by sin and by the Torah that defines such sinful behavior. Recall Romans chapter 11 that talks about how that Paul would not have known covetousness unless he, and, unless he was familiar with the passage that said, you shall not covet. So we know that one of the functions of the law, even Calvin recognized this, one of the functions of the law is to actually highlight sin to, to, as a mirror to show what sin is and to, to limit it and to restrict sin and to, to, to adjudicate sin among mankind. So Paul is teaching this valuable principle here as well. All of us, before we came to Christ, we were held prisoner by sin. Remember, we were slaves to sin, and to our sinful nature we were we were slaves. And for that reason, the Torah not only defines this 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 sin, uh, the, the the Torah itself uh, has mastery over us in the sense that sin and Torah have this this diabolical relationship with one another. Uh, sin uses the Torah to actually deceive us from time to time and to cause us to, to not only want to sin, but to be helpless and to be held captive as a prisoner to sin so that we, we find ourselves uh, uh, unable to break free from the sin cycle. Indeed, I say in my commentary, to be sure, a person not yet freed from his sinful passions is a veritable prisoner of unrighteousness. He's a veritable slave of himself, if you will. And he has no power in and of himself to break free from, not only from the cycle of sin, 
but to break free from the propensity to sin. He can, he can will himself into not sinning from time to time, but ultimately, at the end of the day, he'll be up to no good. And when he finally stands before God on Judgment Day, unless he has claimed, um, uh, unless he has claimed the forgiveness only offered through Yeshua, then God will pronounce him as a sinner, guilty, and there's nothing he can do about it. And of course, Paul's aware of all of this. So Paul is describing, as I say in my commentary, we're near the bottom of the page now. We're about to move into page 136. Paul is describing a state of existence that is actually walked by every single human since the fall of Adam. He's not talking about a period on planet Earth when no faith was extant, right? When he says before faith came. He's not saying that there's a time period on Earth when there was no faith. Rather, he's not speaking of a period on planet Earth when no faith was extant, and mankind pined away in darkness and supposed slavery to the law awaiting the coming of Messiah. That's not what he's talking about. Um, more to the point of Shaul's context, however... He's um, he's trying to get us to understand that when he says, quote, held prisoners by the law, what he really means is, quote, in subjection to the condemnation brought on by sin, condemnation rightfully administered by the Torah, end quote. And um, what we're going to see is, as I go back and explain later on, we're going to see that once a person comes to know Messiah or once... God reveals the Messiah to a person, opens this, that person's eyes and does that monergistic work or does that prevenient grace part that, that, uh, step that the, um, the Armenians talk about. Um, then, then a person can realize that only in Messiah could he have been set free from this slavery, this, this, uh, this subjection to the condemnation. Not only is he released from this condemnation, but he's also released from the propensity to sin. So we see that this is what Paul means by this Greek phrase, huponamon, which is rendered as most, in most uh, passages, as under the law. And I, I highlight all of that just to say that under the law here doesn't necessarily mean under obedience to the law. Rather, it means under the condemnation of the law. And we'll, we'll go back and look at that in a moment. Let's move on to verse 24 and read the, the commentary. And then what I'm doing this time is I'm reading all of the commentary in order. And then I'll go back and kind of midrash with us on all the verses that I just read. See if that makes a little more sense. All right, verse 24 says, So then the faith was our, I'm sorry, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, and this is the passage that leads us. We're gonna we're not, we're not gonna read verse twenty five tonight. We're not even gonna study it. We're gonna study it next week. But this is the verse where where it starts using this idea of a schoolmaster, a, a boy tutor, the the, the pedagogos. We're gonna start talking about this idea of one of the functions of the law, which is to safeguard our journey through life as we walk, as we should be walking towards the Messiah, towards the teacher of righteousness himself. So let's start talking about this. Comments for 324. The KJV actually renders this verse thusly, quote, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, end quote. Notice in the uh, KJV that to bring us is actually italicized. Those of you who know anything about the KJV know that whenever it it italicizes a word, it's it's the uh, translator's way of saying this does not show up in the Greek. This is our own added wording to kind of um, help clear up what might 
of otherwise be some ambiguous meanings. So literally, it must be saying, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster unto Christ. It doesn't have to say to bring us unto Christ. So it actually says, the law was our schoolmaster unto Christ. All right, uh, let's read my commentary, and I'll, see why, I'll tell you kind of why I brought that up. The Greek word for schoolmaster is our familiar word, um, pedagogos. And this word, uh, we gain our English word pedagogue from this Greek word, pedagogos. Thayer and, Thayer and Smith's Bible Dictionary, the TSBD, defines this word as, quote, a tutor, i.e., a guardian and guide of boys. Among the Greeks and the Romans, the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them, without these, these uh, guardians. And um, they, were, they were not so much as allowed to step out of the house without them before arriving at the age of manhood, end quote. And I lifted that information, footnote number 133, from the TSBD to this particular word, pedagogas. Okay, let's keep reading my commentary. The point of Paul's argument here, and I don't think that this point is, is easily misunderstood, but the point of Paul's argument here is that the Torah is a tool in the hands of the Ruach HaKodesh. And it's designed by the Father to lead us to the teacher of righteousness. It's important that we understand, as I say in my commentary, the Torah is not the teacher in and of itself, although the word Torah does mean God's instructions or God's teachings, and we get we get other uh, Hebrew words related to teacher from this root word, which is yada, actually kind of an archery term itself. But yada, the root word for Torah, uh, we we also get the word moreh, which is teacher, from that. So yada leads to Torah, and yada leads to moreh. So it is true that related words to yada give rise to cognates that refer to the term teacher, but for Paul, it's important for us to understand that the Torah is not the teacher in and of itself. It's not the teacher, capital T. Rather, Messiah is the teacher. The Torah is not the goal. The Messiah is the goal. Recall uh, Romans uh, 10, verse 4, where Paul says that Messiah is the goal at which the Torah aims. All right? The Torah actually functions to lead, I say in my commentary, to lead the unregenerate man to faith in the central object of the Torah, which is Yeshua of Netzeret. And this part, I'm sure many Christians would agree with. Remember that starting in chapter 3 and verse 19 of, of Galatians here, and we'll go back and look at this here in a moment, starting in verse 3 and 19, Paul's been giving us kind of a digression on the purposes and functions of the law. It's kind of a, a little discussion within the larger context of talking about the faith of Abraham and how one is brought into the covenant the same way that Abraham is brought into the covenant. Tell me, you Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We talked about earlier up in the passage. He goes and brings in these all of these passages about Habakkuk 2.4, uh, the just shall live by faith. He talks about in Leviticus uh, 18.5 that the right the, the man who does these things shall live by them. And um, um, so we, we talked at length about how one is granted genuine and lasting covenant membership. And we find we found out uh, weeks ago that it is not through the rubrics of a man-made conversion policy for Gentiles who were not born with otherwise legally recognized Jewish status or practical Jewishness, if you want to call it that. But instead, Paul is challenging the detractors 
the influencers, the Judaizers, whatever you want to call them, as well as challenging the Gentiles who are considering going down this path of conversion, that their conversion to, to legal Jewish status is not going to change the heart matter. And so the Torah functions to lead this unregenerate man to faith in the central object of the Torah, which is Yeshua. And you, and Paul starts going down this little kind of a digression, this little uh, answering the question that the influencers and the Gentiles might have raised since he kind of puts Torah on back burner status when it comes to obtaining genuine and lasting covenant membership. It is not gained through the Torah. It is not gained through the works of the law. It is not gained through uh, changing one's ethnicity. And therefore, the law doesn't play a central part when it comes to bringing a person uh, into genuine covenant membership. It is faith that plays the central part. And given that central truth it would lead the person to start thinking that the Torah doesn't have any importance in their life or in the life of a community member. And so now Paul has to kind of turn to this, why then the law, right? Tiyun honamas, why was the law even given? All right, so it's it's in this little section that we're talking about this concept of Torah, and then he starts turning it once again to um, uh, helping us understand that the Torah is not worthless. On the contrary, it actually plays a vital function in the life of the community member. The person who has not yet made his decision can look to the Torah and with the help of the Holy Spirit can actually begin to make an informed decision uh, as to what is the central purpose and object and of, of the Torah that he's studying and living out in his life. Understand what I mean? So, as I read my commentary right in the middle of this paragraph, remember that starting in chapter 3 and verse 19, Paul has been giving us this digression on the purposes and function of the Torah. And right here in this verse now, he would have his audience, which is no doubt made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, he would have his audience understand that they were in need of such tutelage until arriving at the moment of personal salvation. So far from saying that the Torah is worthless, the Torah is a vital part of, that God uses. It's, it's uh, 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 what we would call a, a, a very important tool in the hands of, of the Holy Spirit. His final statement then, <clears throat> which reads, quote, that we might be justified by faith, end quote, right? Remember, we already talked about how this phrase justification, this dikaiosune, uh, the kaios word group, this justified justification uh, to be counted as righteous, uh, to be declared as righteous by God. This concept only happens by faith because that's the way it happened with Abraham. And I, I understand that this particular last clause, right, that we might be justified by faith as opposed to being justified by our ethnicity, this would send a chilling challenge to his detractors, who, as we recall, were opting for justification by ethnic status, justification by uh, inclusion into the peoplehood of God, inclusion into the, um, the uh, elect of God. In other words... One had to go from being of the nations to being of Israel. And we already know that in the first century, to be of Israel was to be basically of Jewish identity. Um, first century Israel was using uh, the term Israel, the, the identification known as Israel, synonymously with the identification known as Jewishness. They were kind of one and the same. So, so that in their eyes, all Israel was Jewish Israel. And the only way for a person to be reckoned as righteous was to be part of Israel. In other words, the only way to be a person to, for a person to be reckoned as righteousness was to be part of uh, to be practically Jewish. So let's keep reading. In other words, circumcision for, or circum, circumcision accomplished that fact for covenant members. 
Okay. Um, so I go on to say, um, I might add that a similar challenge, as far as being justified by faith, a similar challenge awaits the covenant, um, awaits the conventional Christian who supposes that once he reaches the goal, which is Messiah, right? He reaches the goal of the Torah. Once he reaches this place, he typically is taught that the Torah has ceased to function, which is a position championed by ostensible support from the very next verse in the chapter that we're not going to look at today. However, Paul would not agree to dismissing the Torah so easily once one affirms personal faith in Yeshua. And I say it this way, like a master tool in the hands of the master craftsman, the Torah employs many functions, and leading the boy to the schoolmaster is only one of them. End quote. Okay. Let's now go back and kind of look at uh, what we've been studying. Um, let me turn actually to the, uh, the, the the passages that we looked at, and I'll only talk for the next, say, I think I'll go just for another 10 minutes and kind of explain where we're going. Now let's go back and kind of do what, what I was calling the segue and, and understand the larger context. If we actually look at Galatians 3, starting with, say, verse... Uh, 15, uh, verse 11. Um, so let's look at this. Galatians 3.11, Paul's reminding us that it's evident that no one's justified before God by law for the righteous shall live by faith. This we learned many weeks ago, his quote from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, is that he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. We know this to be sure. The righteous man, not the righteous Jew, will be justified by faith, and not the righteous Gentile, but rather the righteous Jew and Gentile. And it's it's beginning here that I think he's going to start bringing us into a sharper understanding of um, the purposes of the law in relationship to bringing us to faith as well as continuing our, our continuing lifestyle of faith. And how are we to understand the Torah's roles and functions in our life um, to not only to bring us to Messiah, but to also help us to understand uh, how to please God once we have come to a knowledge of Messiah. He says that, um, he says in the very next verse, the law is not of faith, meaning it, it doesn't bring us into this relationship of faith. The law doesn't, the law isn't the, isn't the one that automatically grants us this righteousness that we're seeking. And it's certainly, not, if it's not the law as a general sense, then it's, it cannot be the law in the specific sense of the works of the law which would be some form of holocaust that our community would be proposing. Recall that I feel that works of the law can be best understood as a as the 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 group. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the the what we might call today as the kind of the, the the bylaws that each denomination holds to to help keep define the group and to keep the group functioning on a normal everyday basis. So we got churches. Uh, around the world that each have their own particular um, practices, traditions, church bylaws, uh, um, church policies, whatever you want to call them. And as you move from church to church to church, you find these differences uh, kind of separate and define the, gr the groups from one another. Not separated in the spirit and not separated from the, from the head, which is Messiah. We're all part of the same body. I recognize that. But as we have each have the freedom to to uh, join and live within any particular community that we feel God is assigning us to, as it were, then 
to, to that extent, it's, it's a harmless practice to, to join one denomination versus another. As long as you're holding to the central tenets of the faith and not, uh, deviating from what we might call the pillars or the, the, uh, the, 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 the um, uh, the central tenets, the, the core beliefs, as it were, then I don't see any any harm in, in joining one particular church over any other church. In other words, your Baptist church isn't necessarily better than your Lutheran church, or better than your Presbyterian church, or better than your your you know your Holiness church, your Charismatic church, or non denominational church for that matter. So Judaism was no different in the first century. They had a lot of denominations going on, as it were. It's prop. It's more properly to call them Judaisms than it is to just call them the Judaism, you know, the singular versus the plural. So we had a lot of the kind of a denominationalism going on in the first century among the Judaisms, and they were all kind of vying for the attention of, of, of the congregants. Hey, come to our church, as it were, and here's what membership looks like. These are the works of the law that will help define you as belonging to our sect. And these are the policies, the, the group policies that will kind of keep you in the mem- keep you within the membership, uh, keep you recognized as a member. They'll get you in the group and they'll help you stay in the group. Just, you know, adhere to our particular works of the law. So I, I think that's one of the ways that we can understand works of the law if we borrow that meaning from the uh, Qumran documents. So Paul says, but this isn't the way that you become a genuine covenant member. And one of the central works of the law that was being practiced by the first century Judaisms was the circumcision of males to define uh, covenant membership. So Paul says that it's evident that no one's justified before God by the law, which would include the works of the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what would they live by? Well, if we go back and, I'm sorry, verse 12, the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Who is the one who's doing them? And what is the them? Well, we already looked at that a few weeks ago. It is Leviticus 18.5. And the ones that are doing them, right, the ones who are doing the commandments are those who have already been redeemed by God out of Egypt. So the ones that are described in Leviticus 18.5 are not people who are doing the commandments in order to become covenant members. Instead, if we go back and read Leviticus 18.5, we will see that the ones who are doing the commandments in that passage are those who have already been set free from the slaver of Egypt, which is a, a paradigm, a metaphor, an antecedent teaching that describes the picture of being set free from sin. So we already know that the picture of Exodus is a picture of of salvation. Uh, the children of Israel were, were set free from the slavery of Egypt, which is a metaphor for sin and a picture of being uh, slaves. And so the freedom that was... Uh, uh, described and 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 uh, demonstrated in the Torah for the Exodus uh, is um, is a picture of being set free from sin. In other words, it's a picture of salvation. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, just the same way that Moshe redeemed the children of Israel from the curses or from the the the, the uh, what we could say the uh, um, the the enslavement of the Egyptians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We talked about this verse uh, a few weeks ago as well, how that the curse of the law must apply to all humanity, not just to Jews, uh, in the sense that all men are sinners. From Adam till today, all men have, have inherited the sin that was passed on from our father, Adam. And only by breaking 
the curse that was pronounced on the offspring of Adam, only by coming under the redemption of Messiah can we expect to be identified with the new Adam. Recall this imagery of the old Adam, the new, the first Adam, the second Adam, from Paul's uh, uh, discussion there in Romans chapter 5. So as we identify with the new Adam, right, the, the, the new superhuman, which is, of course, Messiah, then we are set free from this curse of the law. And it's, of course, this is substitutionary language. Yeshua became a curse for us the same way that the animal sacrifices took on the curse or took on the punishment uh, of the person who sinned in the Old Testament. So this blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews so that we can receive the promise. Now, this is interesting because now he talks about this promise that is received uh, the promise of the Spirit that's received through faith. This promise is given to the redeemed. This promise is experienced only by those who have accepted Yeshua. But then what happens to the Torah? Notice that, uh, skipping verse uh, 15 for a moment, and jumping down to the verse 16, the promises, this promise of the Spirit, these were made to Abraham and to offspring, which... Paul does this nice little midrash about how the offspring is in the singular, meaning that this promise was must, must have been made ultimately to Yeshua and that the only way for us as sinful humanity <clears throat> to, to experience the benefit of the promise, to join in the promise, to gain any, any benefit from it <clears throat> is to, um, uh, to be found within this singular seed, this offspring singular. Of course, that's Yeshua, and Paul says that explicitly. So, Paul talks about in verse um, 14 about that we receive the promise of faith. I'm sorry, in verse um, 16, about how the offspring is Yeshua, and the only way for us to receive this promise is to be found in Messiah. And then he goes, he turns then to this idea of that <clears throat> the law, which came 430 years afterwards, doesn't nullify the, 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 um, the covenant that God made with Abraham, which contained the promise that was previously ratified by God. It doesn't make the promise void. And and then he reminds us again in verse 18 that if the inheritance comes by the law, like the influencers were saying, meaning if it comes by obedience to a man-made ceremony that was supposedly hinted at in the law, in other words, if it comes through this two-sided coin called covenantal nomism, where the first side is the Jewish identity that one gained at either birth or by conversion, and the second side of the coin of this covenantal nomism was the maintenance of covenant membership that one was obligated to as he continued to walk into Torah and to turn away from sin and to walk into the sacrifices, etc., etc. In other words, to steer clear of idolatry and to steer clear of um, of forsaking the commandments. In other words, to to uh, what did how did Moshe describe it in Deuteronomy uh, chapter um, six uh, about how that I'm sorry in Deuteronomy chapter twenty eight uh, the person who is accursed is the person who does not conform to all these words of the Torah. So the idea of conforming to all the words of the Torah is the idea of, of maintaining one's covenant membership in the eyes of the uh, the Judaisms of Paul's day. They felt that they they got into the into the covenant by Jewish identity, in other words, because God elected them to be born as Jews, or uh, for Gentiles they were they converted into it. Um, but then they felt it was their responsibility to keep themselves in the covenant. These are Both of these positions are wrong. Both of these positions are another gospel. Both of these ideas about getting in and staying in by human effort 
uh, both of them are wrong. And so we know that Paul is going to reject that line of reasoning. And that's why he says, then, why was the law? I'm sorry, for if the inheritance comes by this means of getting in, then it no longer comes by promise. In other words, it's no longer God's way of bringing men in. It's man's way of getting himself in. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So it goes squarely back in the lap of God is the one who who um, defines the parameters of genuine and lasting covenant membership. And then it was within that whole discussion about getting in that Paul now talks about what is the purpose of the law? Why was it even added? And the point I want to bring up is when he says in verse uh, 19, why then the law? And then he says it was added. We have to stop and ask ourselves this valuable question, this vital question. Added to what? Right? Added to what? It was added because. Added where? We agreed that the Torah came into legal distinction at Exodus, at Sinai. It was, it, it, it sprung into existence on in a legal fashion. That is to say, from God's eternal perspective, the law is forever, or his words are forever um, uh, settled in heaven. We can read that in other parts of the Torah. We know that the law is eternal in that sense, that it's not that from Adam to Moses that there was no law. But In fact, we can read about this in Romans chapter 5 and 6 and 7 as well. It's not that there wasn't any Torah before Moshe handed it down on Mount Sinai. Rather, there wasn't this concept of a written commandment that held us culpable, that made us culpable to its written commandments, to, to its, to its, the, the, the sharp definition of sin wasn't, uh, spelled out for us. And I'm really trying to give a kind of a midrash in Romans there without actually turning to Romans to do it. But the point I'm simply trying to make is, it's not that there was no law in the, in, in, on, on earth before Moshe handed it down. And we know this is true because Paul says that there, if law and sin have this, like I described earlier, this diabolical relationship with one another. And I call it diabolical because the Torah is holy, righteous, and good, and yet sin is anything but, right? Sin is the the antithesis of holy, righteous, and good. And yet sin and the Torah, uh, or the Torah kind of, I'm sorry, sin kind of rides the coattails of Torah, uh, finding any opportunity to to take a man who would think he's walking in Torah and to bring him down and to destroy him. And so sin takes occasion by the Torah. It finds, uh, uh, it finds, um, inroads using the Torah. It finds, it, it looks for opportunities that, that, that man in his sinful state in trying to keep God's laws would, would other, is, is going to otherwise fail. And this gets rather complicated in Romans. So Paul simply very shortly just says, it was added because of transgressions here in Galatians. And we know he's going to have to explain himself later on, and he actually does when he, when we get to the book of Romans. But Galatians here is so short, it's so, so terse, it doesn't, he doesn't spill a lot of ink on the issue, but he simply says, why was the law given? It was added, and I, w- I want to say it was added to the community of faith. It was added to the, uh, uh, the elect of God. It was added to the, um, community that was redeemed from Egypt. Who was it given to? Who was it added to? It was added, I might say, to the lives of not only the sinners who were brought out of Egypt, but it was also added to the lives of those who had begun to have genuine faith in God. So it was added to the community of Israel, and it was given to them so that they can have a means of what? We talked about this last week. A means of dealing with transgressions. 
a way of 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 um handling transgressions, a way of 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 of, of uh, what should I say? Providing a way of of remedying the transgressions that would start piling up in the life of not only of unbelievers primarily, but of believers. So we got this group of people who redeemed from Egypt. They're redeemed. And you would think that, okay, that's it. That's all we need to use the same picture of, um, to use the same kind of imagery that's, 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 uh, borrowed from the salvation experience. A person is redeemed from sin. He sets free from his proclivity to sin. He set free from the, uh, the, the control of sin in his life. He set free in Messiah. This is the picture that we see in the uh, Exodus account, the, the the freedom from Egypt. But then why does God bring the Torah into their lives? So my point is, why not give the Torah to them when they are in Egypt? You see what I mean? He didn't give the Torah to unredeemed people. He didn't give the Torah to slaves. He didn't give the Torah to people who did not have the ability to walk it out. He gave the Torah to a people who were already set free from the slavery of Egypt. He gave the Torah to a people who would, by his Holy Spirit, have the ability to walk it out. That is, if they accepted the Holy Spirit. You understand where I'm, where I'm going with that? So, the Torah was given to a redeemed people. The Torah was not given to make them redeemed. The Torah was not given to um, to secure their redemption. The Torah was given to them after they were redeemed. And it was given to them, I like to say, because... Even as redeemed people, they would still have sin in their life. They're not perfect. And so I think that's what Paul's kind of banking on when he talks about it was added because of transgressions. And what do we mean? It was added to um, to give a remedy for sins. And we know that this is one of the primary functions of the sacrifices themselves. They, provorted, they afforded real-life forgiveness at a, on an earthly level. They afforded real-life forgiveness as the worshiper approached the sanctuary. Recall that God said in Exodus 25, around verse 8, that if you build if you build uh, this sanctuary, I will dwell among you. And the only way that God can dwell among sinful humanity is if there is this this go-between system, this this buffer between God between a holy God and a sinful man. What was that buffer? That buffer zone, as it were, was this system of sacrifices that was administered by the priestly system. The Levitical system was the law that was added, as it were, um, so that Israel would have a way to meet with God on an everyday basis, not only for fellowship purposes, but but because of sin in the community. And so sacrifices were introduced, I like to say. They, they were the things that were added to the community uh, that was redeemed from Egypt. They were added so that Israel would have a way of dealing with sin in the community, so that sin would not eventually corrupt and pollute and drive God's presence from the community. And in fact, we know that that's what it did, uh, because the people didn't even change their hearts as they brought the sacrifices. But the point I'm trying to make is this. As we study Galatians and we see Paul talking about the transgressions here in Galatians 3.19, we see that the transgressions were uh, that which would separate sinful humanity from a holy God. And so God instituted the animal sacrifices in the Levitical system with a view towards the ultimate sacrifice that would come one day. And that's why I think this word until the achris of the Greek of Galatians 3.19 has this concept of not only, um, like Tim Hegg said, with a view towards, right? The animal sacrifices pointed towards, with a view towards Messiah, right? They were the goal 
of the of the of the Torah. They were they their focal point was the Messiah. They reached their zenith in Messiah. But by the same vein, this word achris in the Greek carries this idea of terminus, a, 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 a terminal point, an end point. And that's where the Christians come along and say that the the the, the laws had their end in Christ, meaning they were brought to an end, meaning they had no more ongoing relevance. But I don't think that's quite what Paul means when he talks about the terminus. I think he's talking about that there is no more point for them to point to. There's no more object for them to point to. They find their focal point in Messiah, and that's it. There's no more other focal point that they would be going towards. Once the Messiah came and offered himself on the cross, and he died for our sins, that was the zenith of the the, the focal point of what the sacrifices were pointing towards. That's the, the height of of forgiveness that humanity can look forward to. There's no other height, no other zenith, no other summit that we can look to. And that's what I mean by the, the the terminal point. That's it. That's the end. And so to that sense, Christ is the end of the sacrifices. Make sense? End in the sense that that's the part they would point to, and they would point to no other point. They would point to no other uh, person or object. And then we down moved out down into this idea of the offspring that would come would bring this promise to fruition, and um, um, it is this offspring that we can find our inheritance in, that we can find our the promise in, that we can find our genuine covenant membership in. And if that's the case, well, then the law pales in the light of Messiah, right? It really does, and it's eclipsed by the light of the Messiah. The the, the Torah suddenly almost lose it almost drowns it gets washed out in the light of messiah and the glory of the messiah's uh coming and his forgiveness and his atonement and so the person almost comes to the conclusion that gosh the torah really has been washed away it's been washed away by the glory and the brightness of messiah's coming but paul doesn't want us to, to think that way and that's why he starts talking about in verse 21 is the law then contrary to the promises of god recall in romans chapter 3 right about starting in verse 29 uh, do we make void the law through, is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's the God of the Gentiles also. In verse, in verses 29, 30, and 31. And then in verse 31, he says, do we make void the law through faith? Heaven forbid. We establish the law through faith. So, and I added the word through faith because he doesn't say that in the verse. But the idea is that just because faith has come, like he's, like he mentions here in Galatians, it doesn't mean that the Torah is washed out. It isn't washed out in the light of Messiah like Christianity Christianity likes to teach. And so, not only is the Torah not made void through faith, right? Paul says clearly in Romans 3.30 that the law is established by faith. Not only is this law established by faith, but also... um, Gosh, why is my screen sharing not on? There we go. Not only is the law not established by faith, I'm sorry, not only is the law not washed out by faith, but the law is not contrary to the promises of God. And that's what he says in 3.21. I think these are complementary concepts, right? The law was was not given to bring righteousness, to forensic righteousness. For if, in, in fact, he says, uh, hypothetically, if a law had been given that could give righteousness, well, then it would have been the law that Moses handed down because it is the embodiment of the righteousness of God. So that's why we get into this idea that um, the righteous that the scriptures how it it gives us this um, how the scriptures uh, form uh, this extended relationship to the covenant member right we know from reading the the, the, the rest of the Tanakh and I'm going to close with this we know from reading the rest of the Tanakh that 
uh, particularly Leviticus 18.5, as we looked at uh, a few weeks back, that when God gave the Torah to Israel, uh, God gave it to a redeemed people group. And meaning, if we look at the grand picture that's described in the book of Exodus, we have a people that was enslaved to the taskmasters of Egypt, enslaved to Pharaoh. This is a type and shadow of our life before we came to Messiah. We were enslaved to sin. There was nothing we could do to free ourselves. What did God do to the children of Israel? He sent a Messiah. This person's name was Moshe. He sent them the Messiah to lead them out of Egypt. Indeed, Moshe is the deliverer who is the type and shadow of Yeshua. Moshe leads them out of Egypt. And how did they get out of Egypt? Was it by doing the law? No, not possible. Why? Because the Torah had not been given to the children of Israel yet. Right? So they get out of Egypt by placing their faith in the blood of the lamb. Right? Exodus chapter uh, 20. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12. So the blood is placed on the lentils and the doorposts, and it is this symbolic act of, of faith that God uses to, to bring them, deliver, to deliver them from the, the death, the death angel and to the, on the tenth plate to eventually, uh, uh, allow Pharaoh to set them free. Right? So they get out of Egypt. They get out of Egypt. And then what happens? They, they trek across the, 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 the Red Sea. They trek across the desert. They're brought to the foot of Sinai. And what happens there? What happens there? We all know. Exodus chapter 19 and 20. They are given the Torah. They're brought into a covenant. Uh, read Exodus 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 and 24 where God ratifies this covenant, the, the book of the covenant with blood, etc. Exodus 24. Moshe and the elders come up and to the mountain they see the they see the God of Israel and, and you know Moshe throws blood on the on the people and on the on the book and, and the book of the covenant is talked about there. So they all enter into this covenant with God. God gives them the ten words. But who does God give the ten words to? He gives the ten words to the redeemed, as it were. The big picture that's being painted by the Exodus story is that the people that are that are receiving the Torah in Exodus chapter 20 are already redeemed people. And that's why in Leviticus 18, that Paul quotes uh, earlier, Leviticus 18.5, it is the redeemed people that are expected to continue to walk in the Torah. The, 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 the man who does these things shall live by them. Who is the man in that passage? He is the redeemed man in the, in the larger antecedent theology that we're describing here in the bigger picture. I'm not saying that all the children of Israel were automatically salvifically saved. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the type and shadow that's being painted is that Israel was redeemed. Therefore, they are the saved people that received the Torah. So isn't that interesting? God gives the Torah to saved people, and he expects the saved people to walk in the Torah. But how are they going to be walking it? They're, they're going to be walking it as they allow God to put the Torah on their hearts. We read about that in the Shema just a moment ago in our liturgy. So in closing, my point is that Paul would surely understand this antecedent theology, and Paul wouldn't have to then tell these redeemed Gentiles here in the book of Galatians that once the Torah leads a person like the schoolmaster to the teacher of righteousness who is the Messiah, that the Torah is worthless. He doesn't have to say all that. What he does say in, in 3.24 is that um, the law is our guardian to Christ, right? Uh, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law plays a function uh, in the life of an unredeemed person. In this sense, the law points the unredeemed individual 
towards the teacher of righteousness, which is the Messiah. But when we talk about the larger group picture, speaking of Israel, the Torah isn't the thing that per se led them to Messiah, led them to Moshe, if, Messiah is, if Moshe is the Messiah. Rather, it is God who, in, in, in like fashion with Abraham, God did his monergistic work. God brought them out of Egypt by his own mighty right arm. God delivered them not because they were keeping the Torah, not because they were Jewish, not because of any, any works that they had done, per se. Rather, it was God made promises to the forefathers and that he would bring the, the offspring of the forefathers into a good and spacious land. And in Egypt, they weren't living in that good and spacious land, were they? So God acted on his own promises. God delivered them because of his great love and affection for the people. So the point I'm trying to say is that, that it was a monergistic work. It was a one-sided work. It was an unconditional promise that God had made to Abraham to bring him into this goodly land, Genesis chapter 12, and that he would bless him and his offspring, Genesis chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So the point I'm trying to make is, is in closing, is that as we turn to Gen Galatians 3.25 next week, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Paul can't possibly mean that we're no longer under the law as far as a, a jurisdiction over our lives, because the redeemed community that came out of Egypt was still expected by God to walk into the Torah as a lifestyle. And if we are to use that as our model, our antecedent theology, we would have to agree that we as the redeemed must also use that same instruction to, to walk, to, to, to govern our life, to, to be our blueprint for living. Instead, there's a single function of the law that brings us to Messiah. Now that personal faith has come to the personal covenant member, we are no longer under a guardian that needs to bring us into personal relationship with God through the Messiah. Okay? All right. That was my long, very long, lengthy commentary on the, the, on the, the big swath of verses that we've been reading, which is, kind of goes all the way back to 310. 312 and working away all the way down to 326. So next week we'll be ready to turn to 325, I'm sorry. Um, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Okay, let's close in prayer. I went a little longer tonight, but uh, I hope it was worth it. Abba, I bless your name and I thank you for being able to sit and to study with the other students. More importantly, I thank you for the truth that has been preserved by your words. These are our, these are our instructions for life. This is our promise. Lord, if we rip out the Torah, if we throw away um, the, the, the uh, earlier parts of the scriptures, if we say that this is no longer relevant for us now that we have come to meet the teacher of righteousness, Lord, then how will we govern our lives? How will we be pleasing to you? How will we uh, understand the definitions of sin? How will we understand the definitions of holiness? Lord, how can we continue to be a light to the world? And also, more importantly, Lord, if we as believers think and teach that the law has been thrown away with, that the law has been done away with now that we've come to faith in Messiah, then how will the rest of the unsaved world ever find Messiah if, in fact, Paul describes the Torah as a pedagogos that leads the unredeemed person to the teacher of righteousness? Lord, if we rip up the signposts after we've made it to the destination, then what about those coming behind us who still need the signposts? How will they find the teacher of righteousness? Lord, may it never be that we would suppose that now that we have arrived at the destination, that we can go back and that we have some kind of freedom to go back and rip up the signposts. God forbid, may it never be, as Paul would say in the Greek. So let us instead 
turn and uh, establish the law, like he says in Romans 3.31. We establish this law, we establish the signposts, because we also want the those who are yet unredeemed to find the teacher of righteousness. And so for that reason, Lord, the Torah is still here for us. It is still relevant because it still plays that same function. In fact, now the New Testament comes along with the uh, former scriptures, the, the the elder scriptures, as it were, the Tanakh, the New Covenant, the, the the apostolic scriptures also come along and play that same function of pointing us to the Messiah. And it would be as if we're saying, now that we've reached Messiah, we no longer need the New Testament. Well, what absurdity would that be? Of course we need the New Testament now that we've come to faith the Messiah. What would we need the New Testament for, to use the language of the Christian church? We would need the New Testament to instruct us in matters of righteousness. Yeah, that's right. And that's why Paul tells us in Second Timothy three sixteen that these that the, all scriptures God breathed and it's that it's 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 um profitable for what for instruction in righteousness. This all scripture that he was talking about at the time was the Tanakh, but now it must include the latter Ketuvim, the apostolic scriptures, the messianic writings, uh, whatever you want to call the New Testament. It must include these passages as well. And far from supposing that the New Testament is done away with once we come to Messiah, with equal force, we must also agree that the Tanakh and indeed the Torah does not lose relevance now that we've come to this faith Messiah. So help us to affirm these truths that the entire word of God is that which you said that mankind would live by, right? Uh, we shall live by every, we should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And every word is that which has been given to us from the pages of Genesis to Revelations. And thank you, Lord, for this word, for we will order our lives by it, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>